Today's sermon comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In 2018, Hurricane Michael absolutely flattened Mexico Beach, Florida, in the panhandle. And I was looking at this picture, a kind of a wide shot of the town along the beach. And it was devastating. And houses were completely wiped out, down to the ground. It was a pile of debris everywhere, as flat as could be. And yet in this picture, right on the beach, is this two-story house that remained relatively unscathed. And the reason it remained unscathed is because a year before, the owners had built it to withstand 240 to 250 mile-per-hour winds. The foundation of this home was remarkable. Every wall of the home, engineers, you'll appreciate this, was poured concrete with rebar on top of pilings that went 40 feet below the surface. Now you can understand why this house survived Hurricane Michael. But what was interesting is you look, there were a couple other structures that remained somewhat standing. But as you looked at the picture, it was very clear that the storm had revealed which homes had a strong foundation and a strong build and which homes had a weak foundation and were weakly built. Jesus uses this imagery, that kind of imagery, to address the foundation of your life. There are three givens for every person that lives on this earth. 
Number one, you have a foundation. Whether you realize it or not, whether you've thought about it or not, whether you're conscious of it or not, you have a foundation. Number two, you are building on that foundation. You're building your life on that foundation. Again, whether you realize it or not or you're conscious of it or not. And then here's the third, given. The storms of life that all point towards the great storm of judgment that will come when Jesus returns will expose and will reveal what kind of foundation you have. So the question becomes, on what foundation are you building your life? Jesus describes here two foundations— and really addresses three questions that will determine what is the foundation of your life. Three questions. Number one, where do you find comfort? Number two, uh, how do you define success? And number three, what do you believe about the future? The answers to those three questions will reveal what your foundation is. And actually, there's two answers to each of those questions. There's two kinds of comfort. There's two kinds of success. And there's two futures. So let's start with where you find comfort, the two kinds of comfort. Jesus begins here by, de by describing two gates, right? a wide gate and a narrow gate. And he describes them in verses 13 to 14. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The word easy, the wide gate is, is easy or leads to a way that's easy. That word easy means spacious. What it means is that the wide gate opens up into a very spacious path or way. It's easy to see. It's easy to find. Uh, it is the path of, of least resistance. It's attractive. Many people are on it. Right? That's what Jesus is describing here of the, the easy way. Now, the way of the narrow gate says is hard. That word hard comes from the word for affliction or tribulation or hardship. The, the narrow gate leads to a, a more restrictive way because it's the way of persecution. It's the way of hardship. It's the, it's the way of suffering. And by this point, this shouldn't be surprising because this is the conclusion here of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He has been speaking all through this sermon that started at the beginning of chapter five. He's been speaking about opposition. He's been speaking about hardship, persecution, the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. And then you move past the Beatitudes and he says, if you've been insulted, be prepared to receive another insult. He says, pray for those who persecute you. He's been describing a very hard way or a way of affliction. 
a way of opposition. On his missionary journeys, Paul in Acts chapter 14, 22, said, went around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Even Jesus' warning in verses 15 to 20 about the false prophets confirms this. He says in verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. A prophet is a person who speaks in the name of God. A prophet is God's mouthpiece. So a false prophet is someone who speaks falsely in the name of God. And Jesus says, you'll recognize them by their fruits. And that would be both the fruit of their teaching and also the fruit of their way of life. Jeremiah in the Old Testament, who was a true prophet of God, he speaks of such false prophets in Jeremiah 6.14. And there he says, they say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah had just spoken or had been speaking to God's people about the devastation that was about to come to Jerusalem. God's people were about to be taken into exile because of their sin. A form of judgment was coming. These false prophets were saying, hey, there's no hardship coming. There's no judgment. There's no opposition. Relax. Enjoy your life. Eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy what you've got, the comforts, the joy that you have. There's nothing hard coming. Now, we read that and you say, well, that's just archaic Old Testament prophecy. But the same message rings out today from false prophecy. Messages like this Heaven and hell are myths. The God of love will not permit anyone to be punished eternally. Satan is a myth. He's just a horned devil that gets caricatured in comic strips and things like that. Sin is sickness. It has nothing to do with guilt, so get rid of your guilt complex. Or you're entitled to your best life now. And if you'll do a certain few things, God will give you what you deserve, which is a good life, a pain-free life. These are all the messages that still ring out today. Paul warns of false prophets in 2 Timothy 4.3. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, what's interesting is two verses later, Paul says to Timothy, be sober-minded, endure suffering. There are two kinds of comforts. There really are only two kinds of comforts. There's earthly comfort, and there's heavenly comfort. 
the wide gate leads to earthly comfort that leads to destruction or eternal discomfort. The narrow gate is heavenly comfort that leads to eternal life while enduring earthly discomfort. Heavenly comfort versus earthly discomfort. Paul picks up this contrast beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Heavenly comfort in the midst of earthly discomfort. Even in that verse, you see it, don't you? Earthly discomfort, sorrowful, poor, having nothing. But then you see that contrasted with heavenly comfort, rejoicing, making many rich, possessing everything. Heavenly comfort in the midst of earthly discomfort. You say, what is, what is the heavenly comfort? Well, it, it comes or it's found through the narrow gate. You say, well, what's the narrow gate? It's Jesus. Jesus is the narrow gate. And when you come to him, he opens up the way for you to share in his earthly sufferings. And he opens up the way to his comfort in the midst of those earthly sufferings. Two missionaries who were serving in Israel during the uprisings in the Middle East, they shared the discomfort they were feeling as the fighting and the killing started to press in and get closer and closer to where they were living. And they had a friend who, who, who encouraged them with a very timely story of what this friend saw as this was all going on. And their friend described watching a shepherd tending to his flock in the midst of this conflict in the area where the gunshots were ringing out. When the shots would be fired, the sheep would scatter in fright. And this friend watched the shepherd go over and touch the sheep with his staff and speak in a comforting way to the sheep and the sheep would settle down. And then the shots would ring out again and the sheep would scatter in fright and the shepherd would do it again over and over and over. These sheep in the midst of the gunshots needed to be reoriented to the shepherd who they trusted and needed to hear the comforting voice of their shepherd. As the proverbial shots ring out, in your life and my life, don't we need the comforting voice of our shepherd Jesus? 
ensuring us that we're safe, ensuring us that we're in his fold, as scary as it may get? Are you building your life on the comfort of Jesus? Or are you building your life on the comfort of the world? Now, I'm not speaking of enjoying God's creational gifts. There is much to be enjoyed in God's world. He gives us his creational gifts to enjoy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about foundation. What you're building your life on. Are you building your life on the comfort of Jesus or on the comfort of this world? Two kinds of comfort. But second, there are two kinds of success. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this can be a very unsettling verse. Will this be true of me at some point? It can be very unsettling. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, he describes further in verse 22. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? On that day is referring to judgment day. It's referring to the day that Jesus returns. And what he's describing, Jesus is describing two, two people or people here who have done great things. They've prophesied in Jesus' name. They've cast out demons. They've done mighty works. And note here that Jesus does not deny their claims, which means we can assume they really did cast out demons. They really did prophesy in his name. They did mighty works in his name. Lots of success. Lots of spectacular victories going on here. This is the kind of spiritual activity that would generate thousands of likes on social media. This is the kind of success story that would be in magazine articles and newspaper write-ups. This is stuff to get excited over. You'd expect Jesus to be thrilled. And yet he's not. Why? What's the problem here? Why isn't Jesus impressed with it? Into verse 21, they weren't doing the will of God the Father. And you say, that's a head scratcher. Casting out demons, they're prophesying, they're doing mighty works. Sounds like the will of God the Father to me. He wasn't impressed because they weren't obedient. And you have to remember that obedience is outward behavior, behavior and inward motivation. Both together make up obedience. Not just outward behavior, but inward motivation. There's a stern warning from Jesus in these verses. Say, so what is that warning? 
Well, Jesus speaks in a very similar way in Luke chapter 10, when he sends out the 72 to preach the gospel. And the reason why Luke 10 is so relevant to us is because the 72 are not a special group of people. It's not Jesus' 12 disciples. It's just normal, everyday people who have followed Jesus, just like you and me. So they're sent out, they preach the gospel. They come back and with great excitement, they say to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They casted out demons. They were so excited. You would expect Jesus to be high-fiving them, jumping up and down. I'm so excited for you. But instead, he throws some water on their fire and he issues them a stern warning. In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, what's interesting is when you compare what they said to Jesus and what Jesus speaks back to them, there's a difference. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in this, that the, the spirits are subject to you. He dropped the phrase, in my name, because he knew their hearts. They were becoming enamored, enamored with the success that they had. Not what Jesus had done through them, because you could read this and go, wait a minute, if I go on a mission trip and a bunch of people come to Christ, you better believe I'm coming back and I'm gonna be excited to share. We just saw that happen at Cuba. Problem is here, they had become convinced that they were responsible for the success, that they had done it. And Jesus issues that stern warning. He says, don't rejoice in spectacular victories and success stories that put you in the spotlight. Don't rejoice in success that you secure using the name of Jesus. Rather, rejoice in Jesus' success on the cross by which he has secured you. There's two kinds of success. There's a flashy success that has lots of outcomes that puts you at the center and you in the spotlight. And then there's the behind the scenes, under the radar success of the nitty gritty of daily obedience that doesn't put you in the spotlight. In some ways, it's the difference between charisma and character. Now, let me just say something. 
those two are not mutually exclusive. You can have charisma and you can have character, but so often charisma gets replaced or is put in the place of character because charisma is incredibly effective at generating worldly success. And all you have to do is spend enough time on the internet, on social media, in our world to see where charisma lies. Can be very successful on a worldly level and even in the church world. But Jesus calls for character. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Hearing and doing, not just outwardly at a behavioral level, but inward at a heart level. Hearing and doing, that's character. What's the essential characteristic of the true believer? It's not loud profession. It's not flashy victories. Not even loud professions of profound spiritual experiences. The chief characteristic is obedience. And not an obedience that merits points. Not an obedience that earns salvation. But an obedience that submits to the lordship of Jesus in everything and without reservation and refuses to take credit for that which belongs to Jesus. Two kinds of success. The American missionary Adoniram Judson arrived in Burma in 1812. He would die 38 years later in 1850. And his time in Burma was filled with suffering for the cause of the gospel. He was shackled, he was imprisoned, he lost his first wife. And after losing his first wife for several months, every day he would, he would weep and sit by her tomb. He knew suffering. Three years after his wife died, he wrote this, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him but I cannot find him. Judson, sustained by God, sustained by his faith, poured his life into what he felt called to do there, and that was to translate the Bible into the Burmese language. The New Testament was printed, and then the Old Testament was finished in 1834, 16 years before he would die in the mission field. It's believed, they don't know exactly, but it's believed that when he died, that there were maybe 12 to 25 professing Christians in Burma with no churches to speak of. 150 years later, the 150th anniversary of the Bible being translated into the Burmese language, Paul Borthwick was there addressing a group of people about Judson's work, and right before he got up to speak, he saw this, this very uh, small print in, in the first page, in the words that said, translated by Reverend A. Judson. So Borthwick turned to his interpreter, a guy by the name of Matthew, and said to Matthew, before he got up, what do you know of this man? Paul Borthwick said that Matthew began to weep, and he said this. We know him. 
We know how he loved the Burmese people, how he suffered for the gospel because of us out of love for us. He died a pauper, but left the Bible for us. When he died, there were few believers, but today there are over 600,000 of us. If Adoniram Judson would have believed that success was an outcome or outcomes, he probably wouldn't have lasted or he wouldn't have been faithful. Judson was faithful to Jesus. And when he died, there wasn't a whole lot to show of it. The Bible was translated but there wasn't much fruit to show for it. Two kinds of success. Worldly success is fixated on outcomes. Heavenly success is fixated on faithfulness to Jesus. Worldly success is all about outcomes. It's all about results. The results and the outcomes are in Jesus' hands, in God's hands. Heavenly success is about faithfulness to Jesus no matter what, regardless of the outcomes, regardless of the results. It's about being faithful to Jesus. Two kinds of success. On what foundation are you building your life? You've got two kinds of comforts, two kinds of success, and finally, two futures. Two futures. In verses 24 to 27, Jesus describes two houses, one built on rock, one built on sand. Two houses that in good weather, they look the same. Can't really tell a difference till the storm comes. When the storm comes, one house is left standing, one falls. The only difference between these two houses is the foundation. That's the only difference. The powerful storm reveals the quality of the foundation. You say, well, what's the difference between the two foundations? Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, that's the foundation of the house on rock. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, that's the foundation of the house on sand. Interesting, they both hear Jesus' words. The difference is one acts on Jesus' words and one doesn't. And that's what differentiates the two foundations is acting on Jesus' words or not acting on Jesus' words. And the foundation is revealed by the storm. You say, what's the storm? Well, certainly it's the, the storms of life are included in that, but ultimately it's, it's what our storms ultimately point to, which is the, the ultimate and the great storm that's talked about. In Isaiah 28, Ezekiel 13, it's the final judgment of God. And this is a storm that Jesus has been talking about throughout this passage. 
Right? He says the gate is wide that leads to destruction. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 27, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, this may be surprising, but Jesus talks almost twice as much about hell as he does about heaven. You say, why is that? Is Jesus... Is Jesus trying to frighten people into the kingdom of God? The answer is no. If, if you were soundly sleeping in a house that had rising floodwaters, you may thank me for pounding on your door and rousing you from your sleep. But you certainly wouldn't accuse me of frightening you into safety. The storm of God's judgment is coming with the return of Jesus. And this storm will divide humanity into two distinct futures. A future with God in heaven and a future apart from God in hell. And your future depends on your response to Jesus' words. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, you say, okay, well then what are these words that Jesus is speaking of? What are these words? Well, the, the words are what he has just spoken in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So, okay, so you could arrive at this conclusion if we kind of work our way through his words in the Sermon on the Mount. You could say, okay, if I don't get angry, if I don't lust, if I make sure my yes is yes and my no is no, if I don't retaliate, if I love my enemies, if I give to the needy, if I don't lay up treasures, treasures on earth, if I'm not anxious about tomorrow, if I don't judge others, I will enter the kingdom of heaven. Good luck. Those are Jesus' words. No, because we forget what were the very first words out of his mouth in the Sermon on the Mount. The very beginning of chapter five. His very first words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who come to Jesus in weakness, in sinfulness, acknowledging that it is impossible to be obedient to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in their own strength. And then about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, when we begin to just kind of grow in our confidence, I can do this. I can get this done. I can hold my anger. I can keep my eyes in check. I can love my enemies. I, 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 I got this. Then he says, ask, seek, and knock. Pray persistently and fervently for love, for humility, 
for purity, for sincerity, for contentment to do what seems to be impossible, what is impossible in your own strength. Ultimately, the rock, the foundation, that will endure the storm of God's judgment is Jesus. Prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 28, 16, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Jesus was perfectly obedient to his own Sermon on the Mount. And he bore judgment for your disobedience to his sermon so that you could come to him in poverty of spirit and be rebuilt into his image on his sure foundation for eternity. In 79 AD, life in the Roman resort city of Pompeii came to a crashing halt when the volcano Vesuvius erupted. And there was sufficient warning before this volcano erupted. In fact, ancient Roman writers record that there were weeks of rumblings and shakings before the mountain actually exploded. And then they record that, that for days before the eruption, there was a, a stream and a, a, a plume of smoke that was continuously flowing out of the mountain. The warnings were there and they were all ignored. And then on August 24th, Vesuvius erupted and it covered Pompeii in 14 to 17 feet of ash and rock. And it wasn't until about 1,600 years later that they began to excavate this city. And archaeologists in the 1600s, as they started to dig this city up, they learned a lot about its culture because it was literally a city that was frozen in a moment of time. Bodies were buried and embalmed in ash in a moment of time. People just caught in, in the act of whatever was happening. And, and one of these excavations, they, they dug up the body of a woman whose feet were faced towards the, the city gate, but whose face was turned, turned around looking at something and her arm grasping, her hand grasping for something. And that something that was just out of the reach of her hands was a bag of very expensive jewels. Now, whether she had dropped it on the way out, fleeing for her life and went back to pick it up, whether she saw it, somebody else had dropped it and she reached to pick it up, that's where the freeze happened. Now, either way, it's an image 
that is worth reflecting on. May it be when the storms of life come that point to the great storm of God's judgment, righteous judgment that's coming when Jesus returns. May we be found clutching, clinging to Jesus and his words and his promises and his comfort and his success, his victory and his future. Let's pray. Father, we are all building on a foundation. Father, I pray for those here that are not building on the foundation of Christ, that maybe are searching through life, maybe are here because the foundation they have or the foundation they've been building on is crumbling. Oh, Father, I pray that you would draw them to Christ, a sure foundation that will never fail. Father, every one of us becomes enamored with success. Every one of us becomes fixated on comfort. Those either, those are not bad desires. It's just where we're finding those desires met. And Father, would you turn us from the comfort of this world to the comfort of Jesus, whether we're in a really good circumstance or a really bad circumstance, either way, would you turn us to the comfort of Jesus? And Father, would you, would we be able, with these 72 that were sent out, to rejoice not in the, the flashy success or the things that have happened that, that we start taking credit for, would we rejoice that our names are written in the book of life? that we're a child of God and we know the one that we belong to has saved us. Father, would that be our success? And would we leave the results, would we leave the outcomes in your hands where they belong? Father, would we be faithful to Jesus in the nitty-gritty of life, in the daily obedience, in all that falls below the radar? Would we be faithful to Jesus and Father, when we fail, when we run after worldly success and run after worldly comfort, would you remind us that we're forgiven, the meal that we're about to eat? Would you remind us that your grip is firm and that you will not let go, that we are yours? And that your foundation is firm and sure in Christ and that we are safe and that judgment has been born for us. Convince us of that, assure us of that as we participate in this Lord's Supper that you've given us. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.